I mean, everybody's so disillusioned in the process, but if we walk away, if we walk away from being engaged, they win. That's Mike Younger, musician and farmer living in Nashville, Tennessee. This is Halt the Harm podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Clover. Uh, welcome to this episode. I'm really excited to share it with you. So Mike, uh, Mike and I talked a couple weeks ago, and he told me a story about how when he learned about a compressor station being built near his farm, he started investigating. And um, he actually hiked out to visit pipelines in rural Tennessee, and what he saw really mobilized him into action. What he found was places where pipes were exposed, crossing rivers, in dangerous flood zones. So he started taking pictures, gathering data, and he put together a report that he calls the Pipeline Survey. It's now a substantial report, which he is using to show the industry malpractice. And now that report is costing pipeline companies hundreds of thousands of dollars. And actually, if the companies were regulated according to the law, their business would probably not even be viable because of not only the fines that they would incur, but also just the maintenance. They're really cutting some corners. And um, anyway, Mike is really on a mission to show us how we can take this tactic and apply it where we live. So check out the show notes to find links to various resources and things that are mentioned in this episode. And enjoy. Oh, also, I did mention Mike is a musician. So if you listen to the end, you'll hear his song, Poisoned Rivers. Uh, it's awesome. So let's get into it. Mike Younger, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me. It's a pleasure to be here, Ryan. So tell us a little bit more about you. I know you're a musician. Um, you know, yeah. who are you? Well, I mean, uh, <laughs> who am I? Well, this is this is a question that I've been asking myself since as long as I can remember. I am uh, primarily a, a musician, songwriter. Um, that's something I got started in really young. And uh, right out of high school, started traveling and trying to pursue a career in music. And uh, I've had some ups and downs in the business, put out some records, had some music on the radio and played some great uh some great concert facilities and uh you know toured and had uh had some fun and I'm still at it and still trying to move forward in that business uh in spite of its many uh challenges and uh beyond that I I I have a small farm in Tennessee on a few acres and uh I uh do all kinds of stuff on the side to make ends meet Music is only one part of the equation. And uh, Nashville, Nashville, Tennessee is a good place to be for the music scene, right? Oh yeah, there's uh, there's an amazing uh, array of talent here. Uh, the bar is very high, and you get to uh, you know participate in a community of musicians that's unparalleled anywhere I've been. And uh, it's really, it's really been a wonderful incubator for me in terms of developing my own skills as a musician and a songwriter. Mm-hmm. How did you get into farming? Well, uh, uh, to be honest, we—I uh, say we, myself and Nicole, my sweetheart—we were uh, living in East Nashville, just ahead of the this rush that they've had in, in development, and uh, we saw it coming and 
you know, we were both interested in getting uh, a little closer to living off the land. And uh, she's very in- involved in a horse rescue and uh, was preparing to adopt a couple of abused horses. And we needed to find a few acres to keep them on. So we found a few acres uh, within our price range. We we pulled our money together and made it happen. And uh, that's how we got started, have a, having a, a sort of a little five-acre mini farm. And uh, we have horses and sheep and bees and chickens and oh. dogs and cats and the whole works. <laughs> that sounds awesome. That's that's yeah. exactly how I want to live someday. <laughs> that's, that's great. And well, so baby steps. We've been working at it for a long time. Yeah, yeah, I bet. I bet. I live out in the country, but I don't have any. I have a dog, but I love her. Well, that's, that's the first step. It's amazing. <laughs> I mean, it's it's taught me about the the just the daily awareness and responsibility of having, you know, multi-species home. <laughs> um so yeah, it is a first step. I could see myself uh, you know, adding more to the farm ecology. But uh Mike, where did you grow up? I grew up in uh, just outside of Halifax in Nova Scotia, which is in the east coast of Canada. So, coastal. Um, yeah, I grew up 10 minutes from the ocean. Uh, you could walk to the ocean and jump in if you dared. <laughs> it's pretty chilly water up there. Yeah, I bet. But uh, it's uh, one of the most beautiful places I've been. You know, when you start out and you're a youngster, you just want to. They just want to get out and see the world and everything. And it's funny how sometimes you can get all over the world and, and end up falling in love with the place that you came from. Mm-hmm. And Nova Scotia's definitely got the beauty to make to make that possible and likely. What's your favorite place about it? Like favorite thing? I there's there's a lot of sensory aspects of Nova Scotia that make me feel home when I'm there and that the smell of the salts and the pines in the air and uh, the sound of the seagulls. Uh, there's, it's clean, relatively speaking. Uh, you know, I live in Tennessee uh, where uh, there's not a lot of care taken to take care of resources, uh, the natural resources and rivers and creeks and, and you know, wildlife it's it's the protections here are quite weak in comparison and uh, the population is much higher you know the population density and so one thing about nova scotia that very much appeals to me is is how the impact made by our modern civilization on the eco the ecology is is a little bit you know relatively speaking it's a little bit less and they they still have uh, they still face some very complex problems up there, but uh, you know when you get out of the countryside you don't you don't uh, uh, just because of the population density you don't often see the same level of uh, you know pollution and garbage and stuff in places like sometimes you encounter when you get on into the into the uh, the woods here in Tennessee. Yeah. So, like, what, like, if you can, if you can think back, like, when, when did you first realize, like, when did you first start to understand some of the threats to our environment and the, 
you know, the things that you mentioned, like contamination, the, the impacts of, of uh, development of industrial, industrial civilization. Well, I, I think that the, my awakening to our particular uh, series of problems that we face in modern life uh, today sort of it came in phases uh, you you come to realize that you know there's an epidemic of cancer out there and then why is that and then you realize that there's all kinds of companies hiding you know fillers and, and chemical pr- products into the food we eat and into the air we breathe and the water we drink and and you know little bit by bit you start to i mean i was always inquisitive about that i was never one of those people that goes into autopilot and goes along with everything i was always kind of in my mind asking questions about you know i wonder why this is this how come it's unsafe to swim in this bay or this creek why does the sign say you know it's you know swim at your own risk or whatever like that or how come this this area is just says you know not not suitable for recreational use or whatever you know it's like what what is the explanation and then if you come to find out there's a there's a a coal mine close by or you know a chemical plant up, upstream or whatever you know and a little by bit you know you know you can't hardly walk through this modern world without encountering these types of things now and and you know uh, most recently this whole thing with biotech with genetically modified organisms really kind of got under my skin the fact that uh, this those guys are always fighting to you know against any kind of labeling measures so that they get to secretively uh, you know have this product in our food without having to divulge it or have any kind of uh, transparency you know those types of things they start to accumulate over time and then you know, most recently, you know, the, in regards to the, the work that I've been doing that was acknowledged by your network, Alta Harm, uh, you know, I, I, where I live in Tennessee, this, this neighborhood, there's a lot of young people like myself who have managed to scrape together enough to buy a piece of land uh, so that they can have horses or cows or pigs or, or just do organic gardening and try their hand at, at, at raising livestock or crop and, and, you know, living close to the earth in a more natural way than, than is possible when you live close to town. There's a lot of people like that out here. We supply, there's numerous farms in this area that supply uh, goods locally and regionally. And here all of a sudden in 2015, you know, this company, uh, Kinder Morgan Tennessee Gas Pipeline announces that they're going to build one of the one of the nation's largest compressor stations, uh, which I I knew I knew nothing about what compressor stations were at the time. Neither did anybody in the community, but that they were going to be building a, 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 a what is it, 26 acre uh, natural gas compressor station so 60,000 horsepower one of the biggest in the country really in like the the top five percentile and you know it it became apparent to everybody in the community that you know there was very little time to do anything about it and we had 30 days to submit comments and it was 
you know, supposed to be a bada boom, bada bing, and it's done. And everybody was, you know, by the time the 30 days was up and people in the neighborhood were just starting to understand what was happening. And we quickly sort of started mobilizing and organizing ourselves as a community and trying to figure out, strategize what we could do to, uh, to resist. And that's really like the moment that I sort of started all of these these things that I've been thinking about how the corporations have sort of overrun policy, public policy in, in my generation, in our times, you know, you'll, everywhere you look, the industry dictates policy and the interests of the people is secondary at best. And that issue in combination with the, you know, the, our, our times in terms of climate science and also in terms of the pollution of our waterways and such, uh, you know, all of this stuff sort of reaches a tipping point where you're just like enough is enough. You have to, you, you can either sit on the sidelines and and watch madness unfold in front of you, or you can roll up your sleeves and, and do what you can, you know. And, and that's what my experience has really been all about is like realizing uh, there was a moment that there was something that I could do and, and acting. So when that compressor station was sort of looming over your your region that's when it became clear that enough was enough yeah you know the company was there a specific you know, incident or, or moment that really like brought that on for you i think that it was really we had some public you know we had some sort of really uh sporadically organized public hearings like, you know, when at the very beginning, when we're just getting word out to people and our last chance to speak up was happening, you know, we're just getting to, to some of the people in the community. And, uh, you know, the attorney for the company shows up, showed up at those hearings and displayed the most uh, infuriating arrogance by implying that they owned the policy and they could anything that we decided on the state or the local level could be preempted by the at the federal level because they already had the feds covered you know and and that just that was I found that just horribly insulting to me right. i right. i'm a canadian as i told you i took my vows I, I i became an american citizen in 2012 under the under the impression that the government was of the people by the people for the people and here, within a year, I'm, it's being thrust in my face that actually it's of the people, by the people, for the people, unless that conflicts with the interests of the oil and gas business. And at this moment, it's no longer of the people, by the people, for the people. It's of the people, by the people, for the people, but a little bit more for the oil and gas business than everybody else. Mm-hmm. And that part of it really stuck in my craw pissed you off <laughs> there's a little there's a little southern expression for you that one stuck in my craw <laughs> and the way this attorney uh conducted himself in the public hearing and flouted the concerns of elderly men and women from the community who drove 30 miles to come into town to uh to you know express their concern and the future for the future of their community the way this attorney conducted himself and, 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 and expressed the position of his company, which was, there is nothing you can do about it. 
it's a waste of everybody's time and resources to even try. That was his position. And that just, I think that was the moment where it was like, yeah, I, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to become involved in this fight. There's just no way I can sit on the sidelines and, and look myself in, in, in the face and look myself in the eye about it unless I do everything that I can to fight for my community here at this moment in time. Mm -hmm. that's, what I, that's what brought me in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, something I think is really interesting is that um, is why people sort of start to, you know, why people take action because there are so many problems and there's so many, like, I was talking to someone the other day who was talking about the radioactivity and um, gas being extracted from some of these shale layers and how it's different than it was, you know, 15 years ago. So the gas is different. So just hearing it, and I guess my point is that there's there's always more information about what's wrong with the oil and gas industry. There's always, like, more to learn about the impacts it gets really overwhelming. and Yeah, you know, it's funny you bring that up because our group as a community, we're, uh, you know, in, in an overall strategy, we had to look at all the ways that this thing could potentially impact. And the pipelines was just one of them. Uh, you know, the emissions from this compressor station, uh, that, that is a whole other far-reaching uh, subject. In fact, the state of New York, the state of New York conducted a very thorough analysis of of uh, the toxic emissions on these things that led uh, them to conclude that they belong nowhere near human habitation. And, you know, that was in the run up to uh, some Cuomo's uh, uh, legislation that really limited uh, oil and gas activity in the state of New York. That same report was presented here to our Metro Health Department and they basically looked at it and shrugged their shoulders and said, yeah. And uh, that, you know, that, that was another thing that uh, happened really recently here. You know, we're still struggling to get any kind of support locally. Um, although I will give our Metro Council its, its due. They have voted two measures in place to prevent the compressor station from being uh, constructed. One is to, that uh, a binding resolution to keep the, the emissions within the property line. And uh, a second was uh, that they can only be constructed in industrially zoned areas. But both of those um, local ordinances can be you know, uh, overrun by uh, the army of attorneys that will surely be uh, coming to take it down uh, and make way for uh, their plans for our community. You know, if if, uh, if that's the only safeguard, then, you know, we'll have a compressor station soon. You know, uh, my, my work was focused on the pipeline because this pipeline systems that they are going to be um, uh, sort of accessing, uh, they're going to be attaching this compressor station to, these pipeline systems were put in the ground in the 1940s and 50s, and they stretched from Louisiana and Texas all the way up to the Marcellus uh, shale formations up in uh, uh, West Virginia and Pennsylvania. And you know, in the back in the day when they put them in, they were 
moving fuel up to the Northeast Corridor for war production in the in the 40s and in, in the 50s. You know, um, now the flow has been reversed. Uh, although the, in 2011, the Department of Transportation put out an advisory for for companies that were going to be reversing flow, that the reversal of the flow actually further uh, further compromises the integrity of the pipeline, and that a whole new set of criteria must be uh, reached uh, before uh, you know reversal of flow can be considered safe. The, all of the systems here are, are reversal flow reversal to bring uh, that natural gas from the northeast down to the Louisiana and Texas coasts, where it will be made into liquefied natural gas and sold off to Brazil and China and other economies that are trying to get off coal. And that's why this this business has sort of been able to. That's the angle that they've been able to exploit from the PR a marketing standpoint is they sell themselves as the bridge fuel because their emissions are cleaner than coal. But the reality is that the extraction of the pro, uh, of, from the ground is much, it, it, you know, is just as bad as any anything coal has to offer. And you know, the transportation of this uh, natural gas around the country through these decrepit 1940s and 50s pipelines is becoming more and more of a hazard, as can be seen. I don't know if you've heard, uh, this is August uh, 30th, I'm talking to you, right? Uh, on the 20th of August, 2016, there was another pipeline explosion, uh, an interstate natural gas pipeline explosion. I just found out about it yesterday in New Mexico. It killed 10 people. They were 300 yards away from the rupture of the pipe when it, when it, uh, when it ignited, and they were all engulfed in flame. So, you know, the issue is not going anywhere. They are, instead of meeting more stringent guidelines uh, with new construction, they are repurposing old construction from the 1940s and 50s, and they're putting it under new pressures and new demands and reversing flow, and they're moving this natural gas under high pressure through our communities, and in, in some cases where the, the uh, in some cases where the standards are very low, uh, they're moving it through high-pressure uh, pipelines that are laying in creeks and ravines with only exposed to impact from high-water events uh, that carry debris downstream. Uh, that's something that we face here in Tennessee. And, uh, you know, that all that is contextual to get back to the fact that my particular uh, focus was on uh, exposing what we knew was... Uh, extensive uh, poor maintenance, ev extensive evidence of poor maintenance right here locally within 25 to 30 miles <clears throat> diameter around our community in North Nashville. Well, so, and we found six, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, so, you know, hearing, like learning about all this, learning about all the different problems with the industry, all the, the risks, and then even recent examples, because the risks are so real that, that you know, 10 days ago from when we're talking, there was an explosion. Um, and we're, and you're, you just mentioned dated infrastructure. You talked about emissions. You, you know, there's so many different angles that we can look at this, yet so many people feel powerless to do anything about it. And so hearing about something that we're powerless to to challenge is, in a way, it's disempowering. And so we don't want to hear about it. We don't want to talk about it. So tell me about the pipeline survey and about okay. how, how we actually do have 
the means to challenge it? And you know, how did you discover the? How did you how did you get started doing surveys? You know. Okay, that's a very uh, that's the core of our of our presentation to you today. Uh, during er, early in the early stage, while the community was stunned with this 30-day notice that, uh, back in the spring of 2015, a small group of 10 or, or so of us got together, uh, the residents in the community, and we were throwing strategic ideas around. And uh, one of the folks in, in that group uh, was John Henry Armstrong III. Uh, he, the Armstrong family had settled in the area four or five generations ago. His brothers and sisters uh, live all around in this area, most directly impacted by the compressor station. It was going to be built right in amongst their, the cluster of their homes. He's a mechanic. I'm a mechanic. We kind of connected real early, and we started talking about pipelines because I said, well, you know, they're going to be uh, you know, connecting into these, tapping into these old pipeline systems. Where do they run? And he said, well, you know, he was a kid when they came through, when they were the construction was coming through in the 50s and 60s. And he knew some places and, 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 and he knew everybody in the community. So we put the word out uh, to the community that we were looking for, for exposed pipes uh, in creeks, in ravines, crossing fields, anywhere. And we said about, you know, people started calling in and we said about going out and uh, photographing them. And then it occurred to me, you know, I mean, Google, Google Earth is an incredible program. You have satellite. Uh, you have satellite view of the entire world. And what is particularly useful to anybody who wants to carry out a field study like we did is the, the company is, is bound to clear the trees over these pipelines where they, where they run, the interstate pipelines I'm talking about. These are the big 30-inch 30 ones, you know, between 26 and 32 here in Tennessee, about that size. They... Uh, they the interstate pipelines, the, the trees are cleared above them. So if you look at the state map on Google Earth, you see, you see the uh, stripes going across your state. You're, they're either going to be power lines or a railroad or pipeline. And you can zoom in and you can figure out. And if you know a few places where that pipeline comes up out of the ground, a couple of, you know, uh, Inspection stations, you know, they have valves above ground where they can check and they can shut off pressure and all that stuff. If you know where one of those is, then you can go and corroborate that you're looking at the right easement. The easement is the path of trees that's cut above ground where a pipeline runs. So I identified, I sat, I spent hours and hours and hours on Google Earth identifying there's there's seven different pipelines, the TGP Tennessee Gas Pipeline 100, that's the oldest one, system of four pipelines, and the easements run each other, and then 500-1 and 500-2, and the TGP 800 all run together, those three run together in one easement. So I identified those easements on Google Earth, and I left a marker at every river crossing, and every time that pipe you know, in, in, a, in a deep gully or whatever like that where the, the pipe was visible from the satellite photograph, I dropped a pin, a marker. And then later, once I had the, the whole state mapped out, I decided what was going to be the focal point of my work, uh, and I started making uh, field trips out to uh, access these places, to hike into the backcountry to, 
to see what the pipe looked like, where it was sticking out or where it was crossing the creek and take photographs. And most of the time I was able to get back there by entering a, a stream or a creek and following the creeks back. And, and that way I could avoid trespassing onto land. I was able to follow public waterway. Yet generally speaking, people respect that if you're in a creek, you're, you're not officially trespassing most of the time, unless, the, you know, uh, there's some exceptions to that, but I didn't really spend too much time worrying about that. I, I thought it was an important enough uh, piece of work that I was willing to take the risk of trespassing. And I went back and I took photographs of uh, these places that I had identified on the Google Earth program and then started compiling folders for all the site locations uh, of, of photographs, you know, expanded photo sets of maybe 30 or 40 photos of each site, you know, from every angle on and, and and then I really sort of worked toward to putting the whole uh, uh, batch of information into a formal report, which meant I had to pull, you know, instead of having 30 photos, I had to pull the two or three best from each location and, and really, you know, put it together in a formal way that could be. And I had to work with with uh, engineers who uh, who are familiar with those types of reports to actually put it in the right format where it would be taken seriously by government uh, regulators. You know, my plan early on was if we can expose enough poor maintenance of their infrastructure, you know, they'll, they'll have no choice, but, you know, to spend the money to, to upgrade it, to make it safe for the community, at least it'll bring, you know, you know, some media attention to their poor maintenance, you know, and maybe it'll help us. That was my thinking early on. What we did, what we eventually found out was that, uh, well, I'm jumping ahead here. Uh, once we had the, the study finished, then it was, well, who are we going to send it to? And the decision was made. We had to, we had to disseminate it to, uh, government at all levels, you know, starting locally and state and federally, identifying the people in the various regulatory agencies who, whose jurisdiction, you know, may cover pipelines in some form or fashion. We sent out a hundred copies of this, this field study, um, you know, and then, you know, from there we got back a few responses and, uh, you know, things went quiet for a while uh, after after maybe February of 2016. And for a few months, it looked like nobody that I sent it to at all three levels of government really cared. And, uh, you know, at that moment, I was faced with, do I, you know, how much more do I have to do? You know, I've got, been out there in the back country. I've devoted my weekends for, you know, all summer to go out here and do all this. And I realized you can't just make the report. You can't just take the pictures and document it and make the report and turn it over to somebody. It'll never go anywhere. You have to bang your, you have to literally, I mean, not literally, you have to bang your shoe on the table until you make something happen, you know? I mean, and I had to basically insist with the regulatory agency whose jurisdiction this falls under that I was going nowhere and I was going to continue to show these pictures and make a big, as loud uh, uh, a commotion as I possibly could until they sent somebody, you know, an official regulator, uh, an engineer or whatever to come up here and look at what we have, you know, uh, and 
it took many months and, and, and many setbacks, and I, I was a lot of frustration and disappointment. And finally, we got, you know, somebody from the under the Department of Transportation, a couple of guys from PHMSA, made the trip from the southeast office down in Atlanta. They made the trip up here to Nashville, and we took them back to see some of these the most egregious examples. Uh, it had taken, you know, from the time that I took the original pictures to the time that the regulators got back here, you know, uh, several months had, had uh, come and gone and the company had gotten into a couple of the areas. They became aware of the fact that there was somebody uh, documenting their their uh, sloppy maintenance here in Tennessee. And so they started devoting more and more resources to getting it out of sight and uncovered. I mean, out of sight and covered up. And uh, by the time we got to some of the worst corrosion uh, with the, with the feds, it was already, it was already underground, but no matter, I had the expanded photos of severely corroded pipes and, and the feds know about all that stuff. They went back to Atlanta. This, they came here to Nashville on May 3rd and 4th uh, of this year and returned to Atlanta with all of the data. And the D.C. branch, the headquarters of PHMSA, uh, approved of secondary inspections several months later. A very slow process, giving the company lots and lots and lots and lots of time to get their uh, house in order. But there are things that they can't, you know, supposedly can't hide, uh, like record keeping on cathodic protection maintenance uh, programs and stuff. And I, I don't know how technical you want to get on, on a program like this, but there's there's a lot of maintenance that goes into keeping a pipeline from rusting. And when you and when you come across a pipeline that's got severe advanced corrosion, the implication is that the electrochemical system that protects that pipeline has seen a lapse in maintenance possibly many years, depending on how badly corroded the pipe is. If the pipe is very corroded, it indicates that there was a lapse in cathodic protection maintenance that could have been 10 or 15 years. You know, uh, there's no way for me, an untrained guy, to know that. But at any rate, uh, something like 45% of these these pipeline explosions and, and leaks and stuff like that out, out there, you know, when they when they do have an accident and they send a, a, an inspector out there, they all report, oh yeah, external corrosion, yeah, external corrosion. Well, we had plenty of external corrosion all over the place here, you know. So, nonetheless, we got PHMSA to approve a secondary inspection, and the last I heard, that's pending. But it may be happening right now. Uh, it may actually be in motion. Uh, I know that uh, our Congressman, Jim Cooper, once he saw the data, uh, the photographs. Uh, he t he took up our our fight and and raised his voice, uh, raised a call for congressional hearings on pipeline safety. It's important that your listeners know that if they are facing pipeline situations, that they can contact their congressman and tell them that our congressman uh, Jim Cooper is uh, very much looking for for con uh, congressional representatives across the country to join in his coalition to call for pipeline safety hearings. Um, so at any rate, uh, we're building some momentum there uh, with, with Mr. Cooper, Representative Cooper at the, at the federal level, and we're waiting to see what the PHMSA has to say about uh, you know, the cathodic protection records. One thing that I, I, I need to jump back to 
to fill you in um, is that during the course of the PHMSA inspections, we had plenty of time when we were walking in the back into the back country with these guys to, to chat. And uh, one thing, a couple of things were revealed to me, and one was that the PHMSA has the authority to issue up to $200,000 fines per day retroactively to the moment that a company was aware of a public safety risk and never failed to mobilize the sufficient resources to address it. Wow. And that that lit up a light bulb in my head because we have uh, a copy. See, Nashville had a big flood in 2010. We had a big flood. It was like a 100-year flood, and it flooded all the way up to 4th Street. Uh, in town, but out here in the country, in these creeks and streams, we got high water carrying debris and it uncovered all kinds of pipes. Uh, wow. And they, and the company uh, filed the protocol is that they file paperwork with the state when they need to get in to do repairs. And in that paperwork, which is public, uh, it says uh, failure to correct the soil erosion and, and rebury the pipe and reprotect it and get some protections in place could result in impact explosion impacting a, a half mile in diameter and resulting in multiple fatalities in the surrounding community. That's right there in black and white on, in 2011. They filed that with the state. And here I was, 2015, four, four years later, four years after, after, after they filed that paperwork with the state and the pipelines are still exposed. And so mm-hmm. we were... So it could potentially cost the the company like Up to millions, hundreds of, of millions, <laughs> hundreds of hundreds millions. Of I mean, that's that's uh, and, that's ins- I mean, that's uh, incredible. I guess it's incredible. Well, you know, uh, that is, and I'm very still hopeful that we can potentially uh, hold them to account on some level uh, for their for their failure to fix what what we have in the in, in our creeks and streams and ravines here. Uh, but the second thing that was revealed to me during the PHMSA inspections, while well, I was walking in the back country with these federal officers, was that the PHMSA itself gets the vast majority of its funding, not from the tax base, from pipeline operators directly in the form of fees. And those fees are based on volume. In other words, the... Uh, the incentive to shut down the incentive to shut down a pipeline based on public safety concerns or any other concerns is goes directly against the funding of the regulatory agency that's uh, charged with oversight of those pipelines. That to me was like an ultimate. When he said that to me, I, my jaw just dropped. I just couldn't even believe it. I couldn't believe it that he would. And he's then he was like, well, it's really no surprise, you know. Uh, and I, I mean, to me, that is uh, systemic corruption. Right. When the pipeline operator is paying the regulatory agency directly in the form of fees based on volume of the pipe, that means that the the regulators getting their cut. They're getting the percentage of the volume of oil or gas is passing through this pipeline, and there is no reason under the sun that the regulatory agency is going to cut that cash cow down. You see what I'm saying? I know exactly. That yeah. this, that's the second part. That's the second like big thing that was revealed to me during the federal inspection. And when you put those two together, my hopes for getting 
real enforcement penalties uh, against this company for their five-year lapse in, in, in addressing the, the, the public safety situation uh, that they addressed in, in, in 2011 after the flood. My hopes for getting that kind of enforcement action were a little bit uh, were a little bit uh, dashed, but I'm still hopeful. Well, I feel dashed. <laughs> the dice feel... is still tumbling. I'm still working on it. The other people are still. Jim Cooper, our representative, our, our congressman, is still working on it. Uh, don't feel don't feel deflated. Uh, don't feel like the fight is over. What we need is Congress people now from this part of New Mexico where we had the ten fatalities on August 20th. That congressperson needs to be in touch with Jim Cooper and Salem, Massachusetts, that had a big pipeline explosion killed a couple people up there a couple months ago. They, that congressperson needs to connect with Jim Cooper. And the more of them that we can get, be they Republican or Democrat, that are willing to fight for their constituents and ask questions about how it is that they these pipelines are blowing up like this and killing people, and why is, why is nobody like uh, out there safeguarding the public interest, then we can actually make positive forward momentum. You know, I, I'm very hopeful. I, In fact, I, I'm halfway through writing a letter to the National, National Transportation Safety Board because apparently they seem to be on the scene when these incidents happen quicker than the Pipeline Hazardous Material Safety Administration. Yeah, this is another branch of government that I, I really didn't, I wasn't, I didn't have them in the fold when I was disseminating my report. So I'm going back to them now <clears throat> and putting it in the context of like, you just had the 10 fatality pipeline rupture in New Mexico with interstate gas pipelines. We have, you know, from the 1950s, the guys that were talking about the, the uh, emergency pipeline operator were talking about how those pipelines were from the 1950s, same era as ours here in Tennessee. Uh, you know, I put it in the context of the National Transportation Safety Board that, you know, those guys, we have the same pipelines as them, same era. And not only that, they look bad enough that the people, uh, the, your, your regulators recommended a secondary inspection. I just want to make sure that uh, the National Transportation Safety Board is in on the conversation, too. And I've been able to make all of this stuff happen because my community was under assault. I knew that they had pipelines all over the place. We had people in the community that were calling us, fishermen that were saying, hey, I was down there at the corner. I was down uh, fishing down Sycamore Creek and uh, about a half mile up from Route 91, you know, that there's a there's a bend in the creek and there's a pipeline sticking out up there. And I got on Google Earth and verified it was one of the pipelines we were looking for went out there and photographed it. I mean, these are, this is how the community can pull itself together to put up a good fight. And we, we have, and it's still going on. And I think that uh, it would be premature for any of us to allow, to indulge ourselves in feeling deflated. Too much is riding on this fight. We are, it's like all hands on deck kind of a situation right now, you know? Right. Right. I mean, so you, I mean, so I, I still, I still think it's fascinating that you, you know, when you heard about this issue, you just wanted to see it for yourself. And so you went out in the field and you started documenting what you saw. And, and it just, it sounds like it just kind of um, gathered momentum. Like the more you saw, the more you needed to keep documenting 
and you came up with this extensive report and that's that's something that anybody listening could do anybody anybody can do it uh if you have interstate pipelines in your in your neighborhood you you can identify the easements uh, on google earth you can drop pins and you can hike back and take photos up close and put together a report the thing that uh that drives me in this whole process is that it's it's uh it's such a multi-layered subject when you see an old 1950s era rusty pipeline laying in a creek looking like looking like any old tree trunk that gets washed down the river could ram into it and make a dent or a leak or anything like that and it's not protected it it opens up a whole it presents a whole series of very disturbing questions one is we pay for our government three levels of government local state and federal we pay for them we pay for the regulatory agencies to defend our public interest and public safety uh, and there's no reason why we should be looking at a rusty pipeline 30-inch interstate pipeline moving material uh, from some of the biggest companies, wealthiest companies in the world have shirked on their maintenance to, you know, inflate their bottom line and their, and their shareholders returns at, at the expense of public safety and local and, and all the communities they pass through. You know, the, the rusty pipelines open up so many questions like how, is it possible that we pay for all that government and there's nobody coming around to look at this thing? There's nobody. My, what I learned was that at the end of the day, this is a self-regulating industry. The PHMSA, the pipeline regulators, they get their data from pipeline operators. And guess what? They take that data at face value. I asked him, do you take that data at face value? He said, well, yeah. He said, but the penalties for falsifying data to the federal government are very, very heavy, so nobody ever does it. That's what he said from almost exactly you know word for word what he said and that was a that was a a, a a pipeline regulator at the federal level based in Atlanta that covers my southeast region. so I leave you with uh, those that uh, we have a government that has the authority to rein in these big companies, but those big companies have infiltrated our government and stand between us and the uh you know the levers of, of government that could help our communities that's for real and every, you know these these folks out in standing rock and the folks out in salem and san bernardino all these places that have played you know have hosted pipeline incidents or struggles we as a community, we, nationally, we need to come together to form some kind of a framework for a big alliance. Because if we don't, our very the very democracy that we all know and love and revere in this country, which is represent you know representation of the people in government, of the people by the people for the people, that is at stake. Because we have, are rapidly moving into a time of of the people by the people for the people only when that doesn't come into conflict with the interests of the oil and gas business. Is there a model that someone can follow if they want to get started with a survey? 
I would, if you wanted to document uh, the state of interstate pipelines in your area, I would do a little research and find out where the compressor stations are because the that's the first thing, you know, uh, these, the, the material moves down the pipe and it needs a compressor station to push it. So every, you know, I don't know, 40 or 50 miles or whatever, depending on the size, they have another compressor station to keep pushing that gas all the way down to the Louisiana and Texas coast where they can liquefy it, put it in storage tanks, and then move it on out to Brazil and China and make, some, make a pile of money. So compressor stations are the main indicator for where the pipelines that are currently active right. and well, valuable are. And there's above ground uh, stations, valve stations, you know, like uh, they're, they're usually fenced off, but you can drive, they're close, usually close to the highway, you know, state roads or whatever. You drive past them and, and the pipes come above ground and you see those big, those big valves, those shutoff valves, you know, for emergencies. If there's an explosion down, you know, down the pipeline, <clears throat> they'll go to that valve station and shut the valve off. You can locate one of those above ground in your community or fi- do a little research and find out where there is one. Then you get on Google Earth and you get over your state and you start looking for those easements, the, cl- the cleared trees where you know that, that run in the path of, of the pipeline. They're required to clear all those trees above the pipe. So you'll find you can find the easement there, and then then you find where that easement crosses every waterway, every creek every ravine and then you can zoom in in the ravines and you can see it sticking out at the bottom of the ravine and you drop a pin or or flag and you know so you know that's one spot you got to get back to and take some photos and you spend the time on google earth to really map out four or five field excursions get good maps figure out how you're going to get in there without trespassing and all that stuff take your precautions you're going to you might meet up with a dog you might meet up with a guard dog you know, there's a lot of things. I moved in with stealth. I didn't know what I was going to run into. I I stayed in the tree line. I didn't walk openly in the in the in the easement. I stayed in the tree line and and and, and approached it approached it from the standpoint of there are plenty of people who aren't going to want me to get these photographs. You got to operate with that in the back of your mind. So when you go on your field trips, you you kind of have to sneak in, sneak out with some photographs. That's all. And you put them in your report you compile four or five locations within your 20 mile 30 mile radius and and you can you know mobilize a lot of support but you know this isn't on people's radar until their community is under assault mm-hmm. and that's what i've learned you know people are not mobilized on, on this until they realize it affects them that's when it that's when it it really, you know, motivates people to become involved in some way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is unfortunate, and uh, but it's also human nature. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was thinking about how when I heard about this survey, and I'm always looking for things to do. It's actually hard for me to just relax, like you know, go for a hike just for the sake of going for a hike. I don't know. Maybe there's other people listening that can relate, but I'm kind of into working all the time. <laughs> so, yeah. so I'm like, oh, this is a way that I could be like working and hiking. <laughs> so. By the way, uh, your listeners 
can view the uh, the whole field study as it was uh, as it was sent out to uh, all branches of of government um, at at my website. It's uh, there's a link to it on the community page, mikeyounger.com. If we go to the community page uh, or mikeyounger.com slash community. Uh, there's a link to the 2015 uh, field study Great. on gas pipeline safety in Tennessee. They're about halfway down the page. Okay, great. You give people an idea of what it looks like when you when you compile all the data and information all together, or at least how we get it here. Yeah, the the photos that you have are just uh, you know they're it's incredible. It's insane seeing just like the what shape these pipelines are in I mean, it's such a you know what kind of responses have you gotten um from the, the photos well from the community there was outrage there was uh just uh, a, a sort of a stunned disbelief that, that it could have been allowed to get this bad right under their noses in the creeks that their kids play in, uh, you know, now there, you know, that we, we sort of helped channel people towards writing their, their public, uh, representatives, elected representatives, uh, to voice their opinions. Uh, like I said, uh, representative Jim Cooper and has become a, a, an ally to us as well as there's just a couple of, uh, representatives at the state level here who have thrown some uh, support behind us, um, but the the company in question has a lot of influence here in Tennessee. The industry in question has a lot of influence here in Tennessee. And uh, when we met with Jim Cooper, he was very proud of what we had put together. He believes in the, the fight. He believes in our our side, our position in this fight. I, I believe that he's a good and decent man and will continue to fight for us. He suggested that I that I uh, look into uh, getting a job with the CIA or the FBI because of how well how well the, the, the uh, report was put together. But I, I told him that those guys give me the willies, so <laughs> stay out of the Secret Service. <laughs> You're like, no, I'm working for the people. <laughs> That's funny. That's basically that's basically what I was getting at is you know I'm I'm actually trying to do something positive for the community. Your listeners can also uh, see some of this community organizing documented in the video that I made uh, for Poison Video uh, for excuse me for Poison Rivers. Poison Rivers uh, was is a song uh, from my forthcoming record, Little Folks Like You and Me. And uh, the video is already out there. It's on YouTube, uh, and it documents some of these field trips where we were uh, photographing pipes and also some of the public meetings where we were spreading the word and getting our elected representatives involved in the fight. All of that is documented in the video. Uh, so I encourage your your listeners to check that out if they have an opportunity, and please share it because it does, beyond the angle for me, which is to promote my music, beyond that, it serves as uh, it, it, there's some visuals as to how to go about doing what 
what we've done here with our field study, you know, uh, there was actually cameras rolling while we were doing some of the important work and it's all there in the video. And, uh, people can feel free to contact me through the various social media channels that there are out there. I'm easy to find. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and really, and you made this point before, but this industry is, you, you said self-regulating and which has, well, I'm going to start that over. So, you know, something that came up earlier was just the lack of regulation or the self-regulation or the erosion of any type of regulatory agency to actually do anything. And so by doing this survey, you're documenting these problems and you're scrutinizing the industry. And if the industry had to actually make these pipelines safe, fracking might not even happen. It might not be profitable, right? Well, that's an, that is an important, that is a very important observation. And in fact, there's so much to cover. Some of it falls off the table, but you just reminded me, and I should do due diligence to your listeners. I, you just, I've been getting, you know, there's certain things that I'm trying to cover uh, in this in this time frame that you and I are talking and well, one of them needs to be this, that uh, the positive so far that has come out of all this work that we've done documenting this stuff and getting our public representatives involved and banging our shoe on the table, so to speak, metaphorically speaking, uh, has been that over the last 30 days or so, I've been getting reports from all kinds of people in the community all over the place that have the pipeline crossing their land or crossing the creek across the street or whatever. We've got, we've got crews here. We've got a crew here with like five heavy trucks and 25 guys. And, and they're, they say they're going to be here for three weeks. And that I've been getting that call from location after location after location here in, in my immediate area. So they've got people, they've brought in crews from out of state because I don't know the exact number, but Somebody, one of the one of the residents here, got a number from them that they had reduced their maintenance crews from 80 men down to like under 10, and that that was why you know these pipelines had, had gone uh, sort of with with uh, slovenly maintenance. So, uh, but uh, all of a sudden they've brought in heavy crews and they're working on. I got a call from a guy three or four days ago that. Uh, down in, in some of the worst uh, cre- uh, exposed pipes in the creeks, that they are down there. They've set up a, a 24-hour lighting system with generators, and they have heavy machinery down in there and a, and a big group of guys. And they have to be spending some serious money to clean up their act. Just in these four or five places that I've identified in the study, they've got to be spending tens of millions, if not, you know, I don't want to speculate on that. Because I don't know, but I would like to think that it's it's raised the price tag on for the construction of a compressor station in my neighborhood against the will of my neighbors. That's ultimately you know I want to look at it as even if we don't get enforcement penalties, 
even if we can't get anybody to, 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 to hit them with 200 grand per day retroactive penalties for their for their uh, you know ignoring a public safety situation that they acknowledged back in 2011 even if we can't get enforcement penalties we have compelled them to scramble and get in here and fix all this stuff to fix it and fix it quick and they're trying to do that because they know the secondary inspection is imminent and there's a congressman against them now so the the light has been you know they've been a little exposed someone you know we shone a light on them and now they're scrambling to to get it looking good right and get it uh, and and I think that that's a positive you know if if you're looking at at it as a glass half full or a half empty situation I'd like to look at it as the glass is half full at least you know even if we don't get enforcement penalties they have had to spend a lot more money than they thought they were going to to come and force this thing on us and hopefully you know the dice is still tumbling it could still lead to enforcement penalties I'm still actively working behind the scenes to try and you know push the question like shouldn't you know if if you and if you or I broke a federal uh, law uh, standard in the way that our property we conducted our business or our affairs and then acknowledged you know it was pointed out to us by one of our own people that we were you know outside the lines and then we ignored that situation for five years you or I would have to face the law mm-hmm. you or you you or I would have to face punitive uh legal repercussions if not criminal and so I feel like that that question still has to be reconciled I still have to you know it will have to be explained to me why enforcement penalties were not issued before an action because it's, it appears now that the regulatory, the lax regulatory environment that you're referring to is basically comes down to they do not, they do not deliver enforcement penalties until after an accident. I can, I, do, I don't know much about the record with delivering enforcement penalties, so I speak out of perhaps on this last point a little bit. Uh, without uh, data to support my claims, but my experience with them, them being PHMSA, the federal regulators who are charged with pipeline oversight in this country, my experience is that they exhaust all other options. They're friends, friendly with the industry and they exhaust all other options before issuing any kind of enforcement. That's why the length of time between the initial inspection and, and the secondary inspection has been seven months. They've given those guys seven months, eight months to clean up their act. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's just not working like it's supposed to. Like the average American would not believe that, or well, maybe they would at this point in time. But, uh, you know, it would, it's a detail that most Americans would be shocked to know that. At the end, of, you know, at the end of the day, our regulators are getting most of their money from the industry. They're supposed to be regulating, and they very, and they almost never issue an enforcement action. You know that that goes against this this crazy deregulation narrative out there. Like you can't make a buck unless everything is deregulated. And there's yeah. no regulations. 
that goes against that narrative that's been floated and pushed out there. You know, we don't, we literally are existing in an environment where there's very little enforcement of any kind of regulations, specifically in the oil and gas business. So, like I said, the regulators take their data at face value from from the companies, and I think that's a mistake. My position is they're way too cozy, and uh, the fact that it was it was revealed to me that they get most of their money from the from the industry tells me that there's the industry the way we have our regulatory structure. Well, thank uh, you so much, Mike, for breaking this down for us and talking about the survey and how it works. And um, I'm definitely going to include all these links in our show notes. Is there any other, any anything else that you want to point our listeners to that they would get some value from for you know learning how to monitor the industry and also learning how to to report their findings? I think right now we're at this this crucial juncture where the future is a little dark and uncertain. And the only thing that's going to make that better is if a whole generation of young people see the value in getting involved in this and become involved in grassroots grassroots groups like river keepers and anti-fracking groups and, and pipeline protesters. And, you know, when you see a community like Standing Rock out there uh, trying to prevent their land from being pillaged one more time by one more interest, uh, you know, that's going to leave a, a lasting negative impact on them as a people. Be in solidarity with them. Show them support. Figure out a way. Either send them some money or supplies or join a group. You know, write your Congress. People have to become engaged. I mean, everybody's so disillusioned in the, in the process. But if we walk away, if we walk away from being engaged, they win. And that's real. That's that's. If anything that I have said is uh, something that I would like people to to remember about about this overarching subject, the extraction of fossil fuels and the addition of methane and carbon into our atmosphere at this juncture, it is that if we do not engage. If we walk away, if we shrug, throw our hands in the air, you know, use, you know, any expletives you like. If we walk away, they win. And you know what that means. At least I know what that means. Some people are still debating and, you know, as if as climate science and, and the, was, you know, bunk and, uh, you know, man can burn as much pain as we want and it won't affect anything some people are still having that argument i'm not i'm not having that argument anymore that's long gone we're in a different one now is our our governmental structures are not going to come to the rescue right they have been overrun by the industry it's up to us we have to engage we have to stay on it we have to believe in it and we have to fight for it you know, yeah. can't just walk away from this one because it's going to come to you. It affects us all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when we work together and when we build a network so we can share what we know and we can share skills and, and tools and, um, that also builds our strength. It builds our capacity 
as a movement as well. Even though there are so many different issues that any of us could be involved in, there are ways that we can learn from each other and, and be in communication and build. Well, I want to thank you too, Ryan, for what you do. I think that this podcast, hopefully, and your your other podcasts that are going to come out of the Help the Harm Network uh, are play an important role in building that national framework that we need to uh, create solidarity in between all these communities that are, you know, facing such daunting fights against armies of attorneys, you know, representing uh, oil and gas, you know, little, these little communities, we don't stand much of a chance unless we really come together. Uh, and that, and that I see that as a really positive direction uh, for America to move because right now we really need to build community. We have, we've never been so divided in the time that I've been here. Uh, in the time that I've been cognizant adults, I've never seen a, a, a society as polarized as it is today, but this is something, you know, the, this issue that we're talking about has something, forgive me my crudeness, but it has something for everyone. You know, there's anybody who's concerned about the environment. Well, you don't have to, you don't have to spend five seconds you know, uh, understanding the implications of, of rusty pipelines. Uh, anybody who's interested on, in public safety doesn't have to think for five seconds about the implications of a rusty pipeline and a creek where kids play and stuff like that. And then beyond that, it's, you know, it's the government, uh, it, it's the infiltration of government by private interests. You know, it raises that question. How, how, how cozy is government and industry supposed to be before you call it corruption? Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's really so many different issues wrapped up in these, this thing. And I think that it's important for us as a community. I'm talking about the anti-fracking, uh, whatever you want to call it, uh, climate activists, ecologists, environmentalists, whatever it is you want to call it. I, mean, I don't know what to call it. Call it being a, a, mem a, a human being, a member of planet Earth, and we're st stuck here with all those yahoos that want to just pollute us into, into uh, you know, extinction. I'm stuck on this planet, so am I going to lay down and just let them roll over, or are we going to fight? I mean, that's how it is. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so anyway, I'm running out of ways to say that. I think that your listeners get the drift. And I wish them all the best. And I throw a little love out there for everybody who's fighting. And uh, I think that what you're doing is is immeasurably important. It's building uh, connections between you know various communities. And I look forward to meeting more people in, in the fight. I'm going to be touring my record trying to connect with all these communities and making appearances, performances. You know, telling them how you know basically everything that I just told you about this. Our, our tactic here and, and come in at them from the, the, the angle of the pipelines. I'm going to be spreading that word in all these communities when I, when I travel around and play shows. Nice. I'm going to stay engaged. This is, this is, you know, aside from all of the rest of it, this is an overarching issue of our time. It's how as a civilization we're going to, we're going to uh, redirect our energy policy to reflect long-term sustainability. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's really what it is. That's what it is. All right, Ryan. Thank you so much, Mike, for coming on the show. Right on.
Stay well. I'll talk to you. Take care now. You too. Take care. Bye. All right, well, that wraps up this interview with Mike Younger. You can find out more about him and his work and see his music and also a music video at mikeyounger.com. And uh, that actually reminds me, we're going to play you one of his songs, Poisoned Rivers. This is the one that he has a music video for. Um, so check it out. Uh, before, before we get into that, I just want to say thank you to Halt the Harm Network, which is what this podcast is all about, Halt the Harm .net is the website where you can find out more about the services that are provided to folks who want to get involved in the network. Um, you can really leverage uh, the collective resources and knowledge of our movement by checking out those services and joining the network at haltheharm.net. Also, this project is a collaboration with EcoDefense Radio. Check it out and get the weekly news program at ecodefenseradio.org. Some would try to buy the ocean Some would try to buy the sea And sell it back to make their fortune Of little folks like you and me They have long kept us divided By the many ways we disagree And we ourselves have been misguided In our struggle to be free I don't want their poison rivers I don't want their barren fields And the more they try to push them on me The more that I
believe a day is coming when decent folk will speak as one. May it be soon for times are wasting and there is much left to be done. I don't want their poison river. I don't want their barren field. And the more they try. Oh 